oh my god, I just spent like five minutes trying to find a comfortable position to be able to record and it's not working really well. I think I'm gonna have to move again. Um, I have this like pain in my shoulders for the last few days. It's been really annoying and uh, and so I'm propped up with a huge ice pack behind me and I'm probably going to be shifting a lot. But at the same time, I don't want to be too comfy and like laying down because then I sound congested, which I still sort of am. Pretty sure that cold that I had uh, last time I recorded was uh, was just allergies, and I still haven't figured out what the deal is. I'm super, super nervous that, like, what if I'm allergic to my roommate's cat? Because I've never been allergic to cats that I've known of. Um, I grew up with cats. Is it possible to be allergic to, like, one cat? Like, to, like, a certain breed or something? Because uh, pretty sure I've been... Had this sort of, like, stuffy nose since... Uh, since Mandy adopted him in, like, April or May or whatever it was. Uh, but I'm not trying to jump to conclusions and I'm going to love him no matter what. And yeah, it's okay. If I'm allergic to him, I'll live. But yeah, but I don't know. Or I'm just having eternally stuffy nose now. But, uh, yeah, so I'm working with a lot of body failures right now, but that will not stop me from reading the encyclopedia. Uh, oh yeah. Also, I noticed that last time on the podcast, I said that I was going to be taking the following week off because I was going to Quebec on vacation, but I just looked at the last upload date and it was 25 days ago. So I took a big old three weeks plus, uh, you know, break from the podcast. So it's definitely time to be getting back into it. So I'll pick off from where I left off, which is with air pollution and uh, we'll see what the 70s had to say about air pollution and go from there. Air pollution. The photograph of Los Angeles, California, on this page, shows a thick gray cloud covering much of the city. The cloud is smog, a mixture of smoke and fog, one kind of dirty or polluted air. Smog is unpleasant. It often causes shortness of breath, dizziness, watery eyes, and runny noses. Smog can also be dangerous if it is extra thick and lasts a long time. One smog cloud choked London, England for six days in 1952. When wind finally blew the smog away, 4,000 people had died. What? Wind carriers many, sorry, wind carries many substances through Earth's air. Among them are pollen from plants, sand from dry beaches, and dust from fields. These are natural substances. But man sometimes adds other substances to the air. Smoke pours from factory smokestacks. Chemical fumes rise from paper mills and metalworking plants. 
garbage dump incinerators spread black soot. Automobiles stream a blue, smelly haze that hangs over crowded cities. The air is polluted when it is filled with unnatural substances. What pollution can do? Polluted air can destroy the balance of the exchange that goes on among plants, animals, and the oceans. Animals, including people, get necessary oxygen from the air they breathe. They exhale the gas carbon, monox carbon dioxide. Wow. Uh, <laughs> plants, even the tiny ones that live in Earth's oceans, all need carbon dioxide as much as people need oxygen. Carbon dioxide supplies the carbon that, that plants need to make food. Plants draw in carbon dioxide, then release oxygen. But pollutants such as soot, sulfur, lead, and automobile exhaust and factory fumes poison the air. Over a long period of time, these pollutants could poison all forms of life. Air pollution causes other serious problems, too. Foul air damages crops. Air pollution wears away, corrodes, <laughs> metals. I love how they have to put it in parentheses to, like, teach you a big word. Air pollution wears away, corrodes, metals, as though they had been put into acid. Look what pollution has done to the truck side shown on the next page. Layers of ash and soot from air settle on buildings and clothing, and cleaning costs rise. People cannot, clearly, cannot see clearly in heavy smog, so accidents happen more often. Fumes in the air even eat away buildings made of stone. Pollutants cause holes in glass and kills lawns and trees. Take a deep breath. Almost 1,000 tons of soot and ash land on every square mile of New York City each year. Wow. The 90 million cars that Americans own adds hundreds of thousands of pounds of poisonous carbon monoxide to the air every day. Each year, more factories are built, more coal is burned to provide power and heat, more people drive cars. The most serious fact about air pollution is that it endangers health. Eyes water and vision blurs. A person may not get the oxygen they need when they breathe. They may choke on harmful gases instead. Old people and people with heart or lung diseases suffer most from polluted air. People of all ages have become upset about the danger of air pollution today, and they are working to stop it. The United States government formed the Environmental Protection Agency in 1970. This office studies pollution and works with people all over the U.S. to prevent further pollution of the air. Another law passed in 1970 requiring automobile makers to pr produce engines by 1975 that give off only one-tenth the fumes of 1970 engines. This is a very important step because automobile exhausts cause more than half the pollution in the U.S. Jet airplanes must now have devices that cut down the dirty black clouds of jet fuel exhaust that pour down around airports. The Los Angeles city government has laws to close down factories when there's danger of heavy smog. Scientists watch the amount of pollutants in the air while they study new ways to control pollution. Many cities no longer allow people to burn leaves or trash. You and your family can help stop air pollution in the same way, even if the place where you live has no law against trash burning. There are three photos relating to this article. There's a big photo of the smog in L.A., um, which I definitely... 
grew up with. I feel like it was, from what I've heard, it was in the 90s that they started, uh, that you kind of started to notice a difference of there being less smog. Um, But, yeah, when my parents moved there, they, uh, in 79, they said it was definitely a big deal. Um, Another photo is one of smokestacks that are burning rubbish. Wait, here, dirty black smoke shoots into the air from an oil refinery. Oh, it's an oil refinery, sorry. Um, And then there's that photo of the corroded metal on the side of a truck. Airport. An airport is a place where an airplane can take off and land safely. A simple airport may be just a piece of smooth ground. But ground gets muddy, so most airports, even far from cities, have runways. These are usually made of concrete or asphalt, like highways, but they are wider and thicker than highways. Runways are built following the most frequent wind directions. A small airport is usually owned by a person or a town. It is run by a fixed base operator who provides the basic services needed at all airports. These include parking lots for the airplanes, taxiways, to the main runway, fuel supplies, weather information, and maps for the pilots and mechanics to make repairs. Many fixed base operators also give flying lessons. Small airports can be as important as larger ones. Some small airports are the center of areas called industrial air parks. The airport itself is surrounded by factories and other businesses that need swift transportation. The Lock Haven, Pennsylvania airport in the picture in that picture in the picture serves manufacturers as well as privately owned aircraft. There's a photo of Lock Haven, Pennsylvania's airport with all these little planes parked in the grass. It's cute. The large airports. Large airports in cities have two main types of customers: the airlines and the passengers. For the airlines, airports have maintenance services in huge buildings called hangars. Airplanes can be parked in the hangars and worked on in any kind of weather, day or night, by expert mechanics. The mechanics make sure the airplanes are safe to fly. Communication services at airports include the control towers, where air traffic controllers watch the airports and tell pilots when to land or take off, and which of several runways to use. Landing and navigation aids, which are radio and radar stations, help pilots to find the airports and to land in bad weather. Airport weather services tell pilots what the weather is anywhere in the world and what it will be like when they arrive at their destinations. In-flight food services furnish food for passengers and airplanes. Air cargo warehouses are big buildings where cargo is stored between flights. An important job of the people who run airports is to keep airplanes safely going and coming in bad weather. Runways must be maintained so that the rainwater quickly dries away. Troops of men and plows quickly remove snow. The light and radar aids on runways must always be ready to help pilots in darkness or fog. Airports often do such a good job that airplanes are flying after ground transportation has been almost halted by weather. 
Each airline has ground services, including people who check passengers' tickets, check in passengers' luggage, and announce arrivals and departures of planes. The skycaps who carry passengers' luggage passengers' luggage, and the men who fill airplanes with fuel are also part of the ground services. At large airports, passengers wait in lounges in the passenger terminal buildings before they get on the airplanes. They also go into these buildings when they get off at their destinations. The passenger terminal buildings have ticket counters, restrooms, telephones, barber shops, restaurants, drugstores, and various shops. Some large airports are international airports, where flights go to and from other countries. These airports have United States officials who check all arriving passengers to see if they are legally allowed to enter the U.S. and to see if passengers are bringing into the country things they should not. Flights across oceans use very large airplanes that need much runway space, so international airports are usually very large. Dulles International Airport near Washington, D.C. is an example. It is about four miles wide and five miles long. It had three runways originally, and a fourth was added. The longest, one are, the longest ones are 11,500 feet long, over two miles, and 150 feet wide. International airports are very busy because they handle not only overseas flights, but domestic flights as well. Some have flights of more than 50 airlines arriving and leaving each day. More than 21 million passengers go through Kennedy International Airport near New York City every year. I'm sure it's so much more than that now. Seven million of these passengers are going to or returning from other countries. The busiest airport in the world is O'Hare International in Chicago. That also must have changed since an airplane takes off or lands there about every 45 seconds on a busy day. Airports are noisy and busy, but without them, many cities and towns would be almost cut off from the rest of the world. It's cute to imagine a kid reading this who's never flown, you know, to be like, whoa, I want to go in an airport one day. Because <laughs> airports seem super excited if you've never flown. I used to think they were really exciting when I was a kid. I loved flying. And then when I was, uh, when I was like a teenager and when I started flying alone, I remember feeling like uh, airports were a very freeing place, like being on a layover or something. It was fun to just like roam an airport alone at that age. <laughs> um, and now they suck because <laughs> um, I've been in too many. The photos are... A view of Dulles Airport near Washington, D.C., showing the terminal building, control tower, and runways. <laughs> um, the text is always so funny. It says, can you think of anything more than an airport needs? Oh, oh, I see. It's a joke because there are no airplanes in the shot. Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, it looks really small in this photo. I'm sure it's expanded. Uh, an airport, uh, this other photo says, an airport terminal building where people get on and off airplanes. Look at the shape of this terminal in Los Angeles. It has six sides to it. Ten telescoping corridors reach out from the terminal to meet the planes. I think that terminal still exists. It's like a, yeah, I forget what, it, what it's called, but I've flown out of there so much. It's like, there's like a long kind of hallway thing and then you have like a rotunda sort of thing and then there's another hallway and then there's like a final rotunda but in the photo there's con they're connecting they're like two 
what do you call it? The a jet bridge. There are like two jet bridges per plane, which is less common these days. I don't think it's really common at all. It makes it look really funny. Uh, and then there's a photo of an airport runway at night. That looks pretty cool. Uh, and finally, an airport lobby. Looks pretty 70s. Uh, that's all I got. Air pressure. Air is not very heavy. One cubic foot of air at sea level and at 32 degrees Fahrenheit weighs only one ounce, which is about the weight of eight pennies. So much air is in the atmosphere above and around us that it presses on us from all directions with a pressure or weight of almost 15 pounds per square inch at sea level. The air pressure on our bodies amounts to thousands of pounds. We do not feel this great force because the fluid and air in our bodies are pushing out with an equal pressure. The air above just one acre of ground weighs over 40,000 tons. The weight of air is only half as much four miles above the earth. At 15,000 feet above the earth, a pilot must wear an oxygen mask unless his or her plane has an equipment has equipment to keep cabin pressure the same as ground level pressure. The mask is attached to a cylinder that feeds oxygen to the pilot. Most passenger airplanes have equipment to keep the pressure inside the cabins much like that of ground level. An instrument called a barometer measures atmospheric pressure. Knowledge of air pressure is very useful in directing the weather, sorry, in predicting the weather. High air pressure usually means fair weather. If air pressure is low, stormy weather is usually coming. Air pressure can be put to work. When air is compressed or squeezed together in a small space, it rushes out through any opening with great force. A tool called a, you say pneumatic hammer or pneu, pneumatic? In French you say pneu for tire, so I don't know if you pronounce the P. I'll say no P. Pneumatic hammer or drill uses the force of compressed air to drive the hammer deep into concrete, breaking it up. There's a photo here of scuba divers, and it says, A great deal of air can be compressed into small tanks. These divers are checking the tanks. They will wear the tanks underwater and breathe the air from them. On the next page, there's a funny little graphic of that test where it, like, it tells you how to do that test that I feel like everyone just has naturally done as a kid, where you put... Um, you put something in a cup and press and flip the cup and press it down into water and you feel like the pressure popping it up, you know, <laughs> like it traps the air or whatever's in there. Um, I don't know if I explained that really well, but I assume you know what I'm talking about. Um, what I was going to say, oh yeah, uh, barometers, speaking of barometers, recently I looked up the chart of what different uh, barometric pressure indicates 
So it'll say something like, if it's at 30, uh, I forget what the thing is called, the, you know, the measurement. It's like PHI or whatever, BH. Anyway, if it's at like 30 of whatever that thing is, um, and the wind is blowing northeast, then you'll have like good weather for the next two days or something. Or if it's like 28 and dropping, it means this, you know. I actually, I think 28 is really low, like 29 and dropping or something. Um, it's pretty cool. I wish I kind of want to memorize it. This will be fun. Airship, which I grew up calling a blimp. But it seems like it's just called an airship everywhere over here. Okay. Airship. You may have seen an occasional airship overhead, half floating, half gliding through the sky like a huge, oversized silver cigar. It is a huge balloon filled with lighter-than-air gas to make it rise. The airship has engines to move it through the sky and controls to steer it by. There are two main types of airships, rigid and non-rigid. Rigid airships have a skeleton or framework of aluminum or some other lightweight but strong material. Layers of cloth are stretched over this frame. The cloth is painted with liquid dope. What? What is dope? <laughs> the cloth is painted with liquid dope. This shrinks the cloth so it fits tight and hardens it to prevent serious damage if something hits the frame. Lightweight metal is sometimes used instead of cloth to cover the frame. A number of bags of light gas are inside the frame. If one bag breaks or leaks, the others keep the ship aloft. Rigid airships are usually called dirigibles from a French word for steerable. Dirigible, would I say dirig dir dirigibles or dir dirigibles? I don't know how you say it in English. They are also called zeppelins after Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin of Germany who designed the first rigid airships that worked well. These are some whack names. Non-rigid airships are called blimps. Okay. Blimps do not have a complete inside frame. They depend on the pressure of the gas inside to keep them inflated to their normal shape. They may have a number of separate gas sections so that a gas leak in one section will not cause the blimp to come down suddenly. Smart. There's a photo of the Graf Zeppelin, which was a dirigible that carried many passengers and it had a rigid framework. Development of the airship. Henri Giffard of France in 1852 flew a long sausage-shaped balloon filled with hydrogen for 17 miles at 5 miles an hour. He used a 3.5 horsepower steam engine to turn a big three-bladed propeller for power and used a boat rudder to steer. Other men tried other ways of developing power. However, nothing worked very well until the lightweight gasoline engine was invented and used in early airships and airplanes. I have a blackberry seed stuck in my teeth. One second. Some people hate berry seeds um, that I know. Some people that I know. Not, be not berry seeds that I know. Um, and, I mean, 
they're definitely annoying, but they don't bother me that much. Sometimes they're actually kind of, like, nice. Like, I feel like raspberry seeds I like and kiwi seeds I like. And But this is a blackberry seed, and blackberry seeds are pretty big and gnarly. So I don't know. Anyway, it's dealt with. It's done. Okay. Where was I? Um, yeah. Count von Zeppelin had four airships flying passengers between German cities by 1910. German Zeppelins bombed London early in World War I. However, British airplanes soon proved their ability to shoot down the huge, slow airships. Duh. The age of the airship. The high point in airship history came in 1929 when the German Graf Zeppelin flew around the world in 21 days. It had a crew of 40 and carried 20 passengers. The huge silver airship was 776 feet long and flew 80 miles an hour. The Graf Zeppelin started its famous flight in Lakehurst, New Jersey. It landed only three times. First in Friedrichshafen, Germany, next in Tokyo, Japan. It then flew over the Pacific Ocean to Los Angeles, California. From there, it returned to Lakehurst. The Graf Zeppelin flew safely for nine years and carried more than 18,000 passengers on very long trips. I didn't know anything about that. That must have been so fun in 1929. Damn, that's a long time ago. Okay. The Germans built the Hindenburg, encouraged by the success of the Graf Zeppelin. The Hindenburg was the largest rigid airship ever built, 803 feet long and twice as big around as the Graf Zeppelin. It carried 78 passengers and 19 crew members. It made 10 successful round trips between Germany and the United States in 1936. But on May 6, 1937, the hydrogen inside it exploded and the Hindenburg crushed, crashed as it was landing at Lakehurst. Of the 97 people on board, 36 were killed and the rest were badly injured. The tragedy ended the, the age of the airship. No large airship has been built since the Hindenburg disaster. Many accidents to European airships were caused by explosions of the hydrogen gas used to lift them. U.S. airships use helium, a gas almost as light as hydrogen, but which will not burn. The U.S. has most of the world's helium supply. Whoa, I didn't know that. Germany had none for its zeppelins and had to use hydrogen. Between 1920 and 1935, the U.S. Navy built three huge dirigibles, the Shenandoah, the Macon, and the Akron. The Macon and the Akron each carried five small airplanes that could take off and land from the airship in flight. What? That's crazy. I have to look that up on the YouTube. All three airships eventually crashed because they were not strong enough to fly in bad weather. Mm -hmm. One type of airship that worked successfully was the U.S. Navy blimp. Ten of these were used in World War II to carry anti-submarine bombs and to escort 80,000 U.S. ships across the ocean. The only airships in operation today are a few blimps manufactured in the United States and Germany. They move so slowly and calmly that they are useful for shooting television pictures from above for a bird's eye view of important news events. Yeah, they're just like big drones. Super efficient. Uh, what was I going to say? Um, 
yeah, I. It's interesting that there. I feel like either there are a lot of blimps in LA, or they there was like one or two, but they would just fly them pretty often because I remember like constantly seeing blimps growing up, but. I can't say that I ever see them here in New York, so I'm cur- I'm curious, like what where they are in the world and why people decide to fly them. I mean, it seems mostly for advertisement these days, but they're kind of cool. I don't know. Like, I would like to go on one. I think. Um, this is all very interesting. Um, there's a photo of the Hindenburg explosion. You've maybe seen it before. I feel like some band used it as their album art, but I don't remember who. Um, it's a pretty iconic photo. I'm enjoying this week's uh, this week's content. It's like there's a nice little diversity to it, so. I mean, I don't know. Then again, it's all about air, but it's like different air stuff. And I see Alabama coming up, so I know I know things are going to get mixed up. Um, okay, but first, we just have to do one last air-related article. This is air traffic control. The traffic policeman of the air is air traffic control. <laughs> oh, my God, the phrasing of this book. This control system directs airplanes somewhat as a policeman directs cars. It keeps airplanes from running into each other by telling them when to turn, how high and fast to fly, and when to land. The job of controlling air traffic is complicated. Air highways in some areas are almost as crowded with airplanes as highways on the ground are crowded with automobiles. Different kinds of airplanes fly at different speeds, too. Some small airplanes fly at about 120 miles an hour. Big jet planes can fly at 600 miles an hour. Some military airplanes fly more than 1,200 miles an hour. Whoa. Dozens of airplanes may be flying over an area at the same time and all have to share the sky in safety. Radar is a device that allows an air traffic controller to observe an airplane as a blip of light on a screen. The blip moves as the airplane moves. Two-way radio lets him or her talk to the pilot of a plane. An air traffic controller uses these two main ways to keep track of all air traffic in, in the area. The highways of the sky are called airways. The airways are run from air route traffic control centers. The control centers are in big buildings equipped with radar screens, powerful radios, computers, and many telephones. Each I'm sure they still do have telephones. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, yeah, what? I don't know. (laughs) Each controller is in charge of all the airplanes flying in his or her sector or area. When an airplane is about to leave her sector, she hands it over by radio to the controller of the next sector. She then tells the pilot to tune his or her radio to the new controller's frequency. ATC, that's uh, air traffic control, provides separation between airplanes to keep traffic moving smoothly, quickly, and safely. This separation is like keeping all trucks and cars in separate lanes on a highway. Airplanes must be kept apart in three directions, up and down, side to side, and forward and behind. 
When one airplane is flying above another, it must stay at least a thousand feet higher. Controllers help keep these distances by assigning altitudes or flight levels to each airplane. Above 18,000 feet, where the big fast passengers jets fly, passenger jets fly, airplanes are kept tw- 2,000 2, feet apart. When they are side by side, airplanes must keep at a safe distance away from each other. Also, airplanes must usually be kept at least 10 minutes flying time from the airplanes in front and behind that are at the same altitude. In order to speed traffic, a controller may at times reduce the forward and behind distance to five minutes when she can see all the airplanes in her sector on her radar screens. Powerful radar stations along the airways send up signal patterns in the shape of a cone with a small end at a ground level. There are enough radar stations along the continental United States airways so that the cones overlap above 24,000 feet and all high-flying aircraft can be seen. At lower altitudes, planes may fly in spaces that the controllers cannot see on their radar screens, so pilots must make position reports over their radios. The pilots tell the controllers at what time they are over the stations and their altitudes and speeds. A pilot is told to slow down or hold if her plane gets too close to an airplane in front of her. To hold means to circle the station until the traffic ahead is cleared. Traffic jams happen at big airports where different kinds of airplanes are coming in to land from all directions. 30 miles from an airport, all planes must call the air traffic control tower. The control tower takes over from the air route traffic control center. The tower has special radar equipment that can detect all airplanes at all altitudes. The controller in the tower tells each pilot when to land and which runway to use. The control tower is also in charge of the radar and radio landing aids at the airport. These are called Precision Approach Radar, PAR, and Instrument Landing Systems, ILS. A skillful pilot can safely land an airplane by using them, just by looking at the instruments in the airplane cockpit. In bad weather or at night, a pilot may not be able to see the runway until she is only 100 feet above it. But with PAR and ILS, she can still land safely. Air traffic control in the United States is run by the Federal Aviation Administration, FAA, which is part of the U.S. Department of Transportation. The FAA works with governments of other nations, so the air traffic control works the same way all, of, all over the world. I like how democratic it is. Uh, okay, so there's a photo of a control tower, and it says... Oh, I don't know. It's, it's boring. Text is boring, but it's a photo of an air traffic control. There's a photo, I mean a drawing, of a radar signal bounced back by an airplane that appears on the radar screen as a blip of light. Oh, they're just showing how, like, the the visual representation of how two planes would look like in the air versus on a radar. And then there's a photo of a bunch of uh, white men wearing white shirts in an air traffic control. Uh, it's in Leesburg, Virginia. These controllers are watching radar scopes in order to spot the planes in the area. The radar scope on the right is used for emergencies, especially when the main screen is crowded by too many planes. Some controllers wear headphones in case a pilot needs to talk to them. This reminds me of something that my friend showed me recently. 
Well, actually, I haven't I haven't heard it yet. I just know about it. I have to look it up. It's a audio recording of a guy who was flying with his good friend, who's a pilot. the The guy himself was not a pilot, but he was in the co pilot seat. And his friend had like I think a heart attack and died while flying. So not only is it super traumatic to have to just like be in that position, but also all of a sudden his friend who didn't know how to fly had to had to safely land a plane. And so he figured out communications uh, with people who basically like taught him in the moment how to not panic and like safely land the plane. Um, which is amazing to think about just in general, but I really want to listen to it and hear what they did and how they did it. And it sounds really intense, um, but interesting. Okay, let's get outside of uh, this air, all this air stuff. Let's move on to Alabama. I wonder if I can get like even more comfortable right now. That's always my, my goal. I'm going to move those clothes and put this pillow here. I'm going to try to put the encyclopedia right in front of my face so that I don't have to hold it. Is that possible? It's pretty chill. That's all right. So I want to be able to be laying down and drinking coffee and have close access to my water cup and have the encyclopedia right in front of my face without having to hold it. That's the dream with an ice pack on my back. <sighs> Lukewarm coffee. Mm. Okay, Alabama. Alabama. When Alabama was Native American country, the Alabama tribe lived along one of its rivers. The name Alibamu meant I clear land. These Native Americans made clearings in the forest. In the clearings, they raised corn, squash, and beans. White settlers gradually turned Alibamu into Alabama. The state later took this name. Wow, way to just ignore like so much history <laughs> and say white settlers gradually turned Alabama into Alabama. Like, it was this nice, smooth transition. It just eventually became Alabama. It's fine. We don't need to go into any of the details as to why or how that happened. I'm reading a book right now that is exactly about this. That's why it's on my mind. Um, and it's called... Let me see. I think it's right by me. Where is it? Uh, oh, yeah. It's called... An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And so far, I love it. It just kind of feels like the history that every American should have been taught in school and wasn't taught in school um, for obvious reasons. Okay, uh, let's continue, though. Alabama is in the Deep South. It is bordered on the west by the state Mississippi, on the east by Georgia, on the north by Tennessee, and on the south by Florida and the Gulf of Mexico. The land, 
Nature has divided the state into two natural parts. One part, northern... Oh, no, you get away, you fly. No, 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 no. I was trying to get in my coffee. Apologies. Where was I? One part, northeastern Alabama, is high and hilly. It belongs to the great Appalachian Highland. Trails used for hiking and riding twist through the hills. There are waterfalls and caves to visit and lakes for fishing and swimming. Beautiful flowers and shrubs brighten the woods. Farms here have always been small because the land is not very good. The rest of Alabama is part of the Gulf Coastal Plain. The plain is <clears throat> sorry. The plain is low. In some places it is almost flat. In others it is gently rolling. More than half of Alabama is in the coastal plain. Not all of this part is good for farming. Some land is swampy. Some has poor soil. Pine woods cover much of the poorer land. Bald cypress trees grow in the swamps with gray streamers of Spanish moss hanging from their branches. I love that. Alabama's coastal plain has much good soil. The very best lies in the Black Belt. This strip curves through central Alabama. It is one of the most fertile areas in the world. The soil that gave the belt its name is dark because thickly growing plants decayed in it for hundreds of years. Summers are long and hot in Alabama. Winters are mild. There's usually plenty of rain. Farmers like the climate. <laughs> Quick little fact check about um, Alabama. Uh, the state flower is camellia. The state bird is the yellowhammer. State tree is southern pine. The capital is Montgomery. At the time, there were 142,500 people. The area is 51,609 square miles, ranking 29th in the U.S. Population, 3,577,000 people, ranking 21st at the time. Statehood, December 14, 1819, 22nd state admitted. Principal River, Mobile River, Mobile, you say Mobile, I think, right? Mo Mobile River, formed by Tom Big, Tom Big B and Alabama Rivers. Highest point, Chiaha Mountain, it's about 2,400 feet, and the largest city is Birmingham, 308,600 people, 308,600 people, yeah, uh, which is probably a lot more today. Let me look it up real quick. I'm curious. Birmingham. Not in England. Alabama. Alabama. Today, the population is... Whoa, it's gone down 100,000 people. It's 210,000 people now. Wow. But it does say that the metropolitan area is over a million. So I don't know what they were calculating in this book. Okay. History. Among the Indians of Alabama... History. Among the Native Americans of Alabama were the Creeks, Chickasaws, Choctaws, and Cherokees. 
The Native Americans saw Spaniards, Frenchmen, and Englishmen follow one another in that order. After the American Revolution, the land was given up by the British and became part of the United States. The government made the Native Americans give up their hunting grounds. Most of them were moved to reservations. Alabama became a state in 1819. Okay, I'm having a hard time with this paragraph up ahead, and we'll probably have a hard time with the rest of this history article because they're trying to, like, simplify this history for kids, but some of the terminology they're using is not okay, and some of, and also just, like, the pacing of how they expose this information is pretty effed up. So I'm going to try my best to kind of, like, make some alterations, and but, like, still say it as it is somewhat, and I guess just take everything with your own judgment, because I already have mine. As the Native Americans moved out, white people and black people came in. The whites were farmers, the black people were slaves. Together, whites and blacks built up the state. Like, already, it's hard to have a sentence like that that sounds so positive. Um, white men who could not afford to buy good land went into the hills. They did their own work in stony fields. These people made a very poor living. Some white men, though, were rich. They bought land where the soil was good. Their big farms were called plantations. The owners, planters, raised cotton. They raised so much that Alabama became known as the cotton state. Many planters grew rich, but the men, women, and children who worked in the cotton fields earned nothing. They were slaves. Alabama left the Union in 1861 and joined the Confederate States of America. Alabama's capital, Montgomery, was also the capital of the Confederacy until the Confederate government moved to Richmond, Virginia. The Civil War ended in defeat for the Confederate states. All slaves were freed. Workers had to be paid. Although they were offered very little, the slaves went back to the cotton fields because they had no other ways to earn a living. It was bad for Alabama to rely on just cotton. The ex-slaves' field hands never made a good living raising it. Neither did white farmers whose farms were small and in some years, cotton did not sell very well. Such years were hard for everyone, even the plantation owners. By planting only one crop, they allowed cotton to wear out the soil. An insect, the ball weevil, helped save Alabama and the rest of the South. It destroyed so much cotton every year that farmers began raising a number of other crops. Alabama no longer depends on cotton. In the town square of Enterprise, Alabama, stands a monument honoring the boll weevil. During the 1880s, businessmen began building factories in Alabama. The wages they paid were not high, but factories gave some Alabamians a better living than they could earn on farms. As manufacturing grew, wages were raised. The poorest people of the state were the African Americans, but they too made progress. Black leaders appeared in Alabama. One was Booker T. Washington. Born a Virginia slave, he built Tuskegee, Tuskegee Institute for the Education of Black People. At the Institute is the workshop, workshop of the Missouri-born scientist George Washington Carver. People from Alabama have contributed much to the world. William Gorgas, Gorgas, a U.S. Army doctor, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, Georgas, Gorgas, it sounds funny either way, um, a U.S. Army doctor helped stop yellow fever, a disease that almost prevented the building of the Panama Canal. Helen Keller, who as a baby was made deaf and blind by a serious illness, learned to communicate with others. The example of her courage has helped many handicapped people. 
Georgia born Martin Luther King Jr. went from being a minister in Montgomery to winner of the Nobel Peace Prize for his work in civil rights. And scientists at an Alabama university discovered a new chemical element, francium. There are a couple of photos here. There's a, a photo of a plantation, one that became a museum. There's a very pretty photo of gardens that are, these are part of the Bellingrath Gardens in Mobile. And then there's a map of Alabama, which I've never really looked this closely to a map of Alabama, so it's interesting. Hmm. Okay. All right. Okay, there's more to this. Alabamians at work. The nickname Cotton State no longer fits Alabama. Farmers earn more than more from broiler chickens, cattle, eggs, and milk products than from cotton and all other field crops put together. Among the field crops, however, cotton still leads. Peanuts and soybeans are about tied in second place. Corn is third. Agriculture has today lost its first place to manufacturing. Metal production is the leading type of manufacturing. The Birmingham area is the biggest iron and steel center in the south. On top of Red Mountain, overlooking Birmingham, is a tall statue of Vulcan, the Roman god of fire and metalworking. Other products are textiles, chemicals, paper goods, and food. Manufacturing is aided by Alabama's raw materials. Coal is burned to make iron and steel and to produce electricity, too. Stone is used for building and for making cement. Gasoline, oil, and other products come from petroleum. Timber is made into lumber and paper. Fishing is important to Alabama. Alabamians haul in several million dollars worth of seafood every year. Crabs and oysters are taken from Mobile Bay. Boats go out into the Gulf of Mexico for shrimp sardines, and other fish. Mobile Bay, I'm starting to doubt if it's mobile. It might be mobile. Mobile. I think it's mobile. Mobile Bay is also a major seaport. Goods from all over the south are shipped around the world from Mobile. The Space Age bought a new kind of work to Alabama. In 1960, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, opened a flight center at Huntsville. Scientists and engineers came there to work on rockets for spaceflight. They developed the mighty Saturn V, or Saturn V, that sent Americans to the moon. There is a photo of Alabama's Capitol building in Montgomery, lit up at night. And that's it. Okay. Do any of you guys hate trucks as much as I do? I feel bad. I mean, they're they're cool in in theory sometimes. They can like look cool and they transport a lot of our goods and I think I have respect for some I mean, I'm cur I'm interested in the lives of truck drivers. They have to do a lot of crazy stuff and maneuver around a lot of situations and being like alone on the road all the time it's interesting but anyway all that aside trucks themselves like especially the noises that they make 
I just feel like they're a monster that I'm like fighting. And every time I hear one, it's like they're trying to attack me. I'm like, stand back, you mean truck. Don't kill me. Anyway, that's my experience. Alamo. Remember the Alamo was the Texans' battle cry during their fight for independence from Mexico. Often called the Cradle of Texas Liberty, the Fort of the Alamo in San Antonio was built as the Mission San Antonio de Valero in 1718 by Spanish missionaries. The Mission Fortress was later nicknamed Alamo, the Spanish word for cottonwood, because of the cottonwoods around it. San Antonio was part of Mexico in 1835, but Americans living there decided to rebel. A small group of Texas volunteers, led by William Travis, took over the Alamo in late December. Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie, the famous frontiersmen, were among them. The Mexican general Santa Ana surrounded the Alamo with over 4,000 troops on February 23, 1836. To a man, the 150 men in the fort, plus 32 volunteers, refused to surrender. Fighting against these overwhelming odds, they held out for 13 days until the last man was killed. The only survivors were two women and two children. This heroic resistance aroused all Texans. Sam Houston led Texas forces to victory against General Santa Ana six weeks later, and Texas won its independence. Many years later, the Alamo was restored, and it is now visited by thousands of people each year. There's a very old-school drawing of the actual rebellion happening. Hmm. Okay. Alaric. I don't know who this is. Alaric, about A.D. 370 to 410. A group of German people called the Goths lived in the 4th century. The Goths Goths were divided into two branches, the Eastern Ostrogoths and the Western Visigoths. Alaric was king of the Visigoths. Alaric was born on the island of Pius in the Danube River, now in Romania. The Roman emperor gave him an army in 394. The next year, the Visigoths elected Alaric king. He wanted more power. He and his forces tried first to conquer Greece, but they were driven out. The Visigoths entered Italy twice to attack Rome in 408 and 409. Rome paid a large ransom and was saved each time. In 410, Alaric made a third try. The Romans refused to give him the land and power he demanded. So he captured Rome, which had not been conquered by enemy forces for almost 800 years. The Visigoths occupied Rome for six days. Alaric, however, still wanted land where his people could settle in peace. He led them south, planning to go on to Africa. But a storm destroyed their ships. They had to stop in southern Italy, where Alaric, their leader, died. What? That's like all we get? This is fascinating. I guess it's just Alaric, but if it were about the Visigoths, which I'll have to wait so long for, because that starts with a V. 
then it would have been a little bit more involved. Anyway, there's a drawing of Alaric uh, on a horse. He looks, yeah, he looks like a little Viking-ish kind of Roman style, a little rough around the edges. for today um yeah so sorry i was off for a bit and now i'm i'm back into the encyclopedia world and ready to bring this into newer weirder places with guests in the future um but not today um i'll you'll you guys will be glad to know that we're more than halfway done with this volume one there's just like you know, I don't know, maybe like 50 more pages left, um, but they go by quick. We're going to start back up next week with Albania and then go to Alberta and albino and alchemy and alcoholic beverage and Louisa May Alcott. I think it's going to be, it's going to be a good time. Um, and that's it. I'll see you. That's it. Catch you next week.